You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And we are very excited to kick off Vernacular Podcast with this, your inaugural full episode. Very shortly, we are going to sit down with Danny and we'll, we will talk to him more and find out all about his life and hear his stories. And we're very much looking forward to that. But before we do that, we wanted to bring you your hashtag tip of the week. Hashtag tip of the week. Right now, if you could see me, you would notice that I am hitting my uh, second and third fingers together on both hands uh, in a hashtag sign, which is something I learned from Jimmy Fallon. And Justin Timberlake. If you and, haven't seen that bit, you have to look it up. It's hilarious. Oh, it, it, it's a great, it's a scream. It's a great bit. It's a riot. <laughs> so hashtag tip of the week. Uh, your tip of the week, ha- it's, it's seasonal. It's appropriate for this time of year. Getting ready for summer getting ready for summer and as the sun comes out and you want to spend more time outside and your neighbors are spending more time outside you want to make sure that your house is looking good so it's getting to that point where people are busting out lawnmowers and weed whackers and gardening tools and And maybe your neighbors have already mowed their lawn maybe they have maybe you're looking at your neighbor's lawn every day and then looking back at your own lawn and thinking Hmm. i Maybe you should get on that. I should really mow this lawn. Which is funny, actually, because that's what I was doing for a, a solid three weeks, <laughs> maybe even a month, actually. Uh, kept looking at the neighbor's lawn, and and not all of my neighbors, but some of my neighbors were really early, and it was like March, and they're out there with their lawnmowers, like <laughs> mowing the lawn. And, and uh, I was not doing that, so that wasn't good. The reason was that we didn't have a lawnmower, and so... Uh, we only recently got a lawnmower. Because in our previous place of residence, we had our lawn mowed for us. And not that we were rich or anything, but that was just the agreement of the property owners. Right. And before that, we were on a third floor apartment, in a third floor apartment. So So we didn't even have a lawn. We had no lawn. We had, you know, a potted plant and that was our greenery. (laughs) But so So anyway. So we've never had a lawnmower. Never had a lawnmower. And uh, we took a long time to buy a lawnmower. And then we decided to be adult about it and go get a lawnmower. We did, but we wanted to save as much money as possible, so we bought a very tiny lawnmower <laughs> that... From Home Depot. It's like a child's toy. <laughs> it has no power. But it, no, it does have... I mean, it has some power because we didn't get the non-electric one. True. Mm-hmm. This is a, It's a gasoline mower. Yeah, we considered getting the one that just is from like, I don't know, the 1930s or something. Right. But it turns out it doesn't have enough power to cut through four weeks worth the one of we purchased. untamed yeah. lawn. <laughs> so it was kind of a jungle out there. So I was out there with our new mower. I was pretty excited. It's, it's a nice shiny red mower. It looks nice, but it's, it doesn't operate nicely, but it's also my fault for letting our lawn grow so long before I took the mower out there. But anyway, we have a very small patch of yard and that was all I had to mow, but it took me a solid hour to do this uh, because the mower kept dying on me because it would go over this lawn and every time it ate up a little bit too much grass it would just (laughs) I pull the get the little drawstring going again it was a disaster 
Uh, so I did that, and uh, then when I looked at my lawn after I finished, it was terrible because uh, there were just all these clumps of grass <laughs> everywhere. Because it was wet also. Yeah, it was wet. Because the lawn was, it, it wasn't a rainy day. It was just that the grass was so long that it just retained all this <laughs> just moisture. A swamp. So after I mowed, there were just a bunch of wet clumps <laughs> all over the yard, and it was not a pretty sight. Luckily, we have a fenced-in backyard, so no one can actually see it but us. Right. So that's, well, it was our little one secret until we decided to share it with all of you. True. So True. <laughs> not our little secret anymore. But that's but because we thought that you could learn from our mistake. We hope that you don't make the same mistakes that we have. That's what so we're getting at. So our hashtag tip of the week is that you go mow your lawn sooner rather than later. All right. Well, that wraps up our tip of the week segment. Now you know not to make the same mistake we did with our lawn. And you can look forward to another tip of the week next time. Every time. <laughs> All right. Well, now we will transition to our uh, the rest of our podcast, sitting down with Danny. Uh, we'll be talking with him about Cuba about breakfast foods and about his route to medical school, how he got there, what he does, and where he's going. So stick around for that. All right, on this episode, this very first episode of Vernacular Podcast, we are talking to our friend Danny, who is a medical student at Harvard Med School. Uh, Danny's just finishing up his uh, second year. Is that right, Danny? Yes. Uh, about to head into his third year, and we're pretty excited to talk to Danny. This guy's got a really interesting background that we're looking forward to hearing more about later towards the end of the show. Uh, but Danny's parents were born in Cuba, immigrated to the U.S., met each other in America, and uh, they now live in Florida. Uh, in the meantime, Danny was born and uh, grew up uh, in and around Miami. Uh, then went to uh, undergrad at Harvard, uh, went to England to do a couple master's degrees, and is now uh, finding himself in Harvard again for medical school. Uh, so really fascinating story there. Uh, Danny, we're looking forward to hearing more about that. But uh, given your parents' background, I thought that one current affair that would be uh, interesting to talk about is U.S.-Cuba relations and where they stand now. So uh, in December 2014, President Obama and uh, Raul Castro, am I pronouncing that correctly, Danny, Raul? Yes, that's great. All right, good. <laughs> just just correct me if I get any of this stuff wrong. Uh, President Obama and Raul Castro announced uh, a, a degree of normalization of ties. So my understanding is that we now have uh, full diplomatic ties or, or full diplomatic ties will be restored. Uh, we did a prisoner swap and we uh, loosened some of the restrictions on certain commodities. So the trade embargo is still in place. Uh, so we can't, uh, we don't have full trade ties with Cuba, but some things are allowed to go back and forth. Uh, and I think the big thing here that a lot of people cared about was Cuban cigars. <laughs> uh, so now Cuban cigars are, are allowed to come into the United States. Is that, is that correct, given what you understand, Danny? You know, I actually haven't looked into the Cuban cigar issue, which is really <laughs> funny. Um, but it definitely is a sort of new... Yeah, a new day, I think, in, in terms of how we're relating as two countries, which is interesting to think about. Um, and more broadly, just thank you for having me on this podcast, which is uh, really exciting. So I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Oh, we are really happy to have, to have you. Have you. Yeah. So maybe we should just back up for one second. And for maybe those who haven't been following this, maybe explain just like in a sentence the shift that's just occurred. Yeah, so the shift is pretty significant because since, uh, well, so Fidel Castro came to power in Cuba in 1959, 
when he he toppled uh, the previous uh, dictator there, who was uh, Ful- Fulgencio Batista. Is that correct, Danny? Fulgencio. Yes. So Fulgencio Batista toppled in 1959 by Fidel Castro, uh, and then Fidel Castro started aligning with the Soviet Union, and so that's why we had the Cuban Missile Crisis in uh, 1962 when uh, uh, Khrushchev moved a bunch of nuclear missiles to Cuban soil, and uh, President Kennedy had to. Uh, work through the Cuban Missile Crisis and agree not to invade Cuba, and then the missiles were removed. Uh, but that Cuban Missile Crisis, I think, is pivotal because that put Cuba in the minds of many Americans and really in the American imagination as a threat to national security. And so that alignment with the Soviet Union obviously ended once the Soviet Union dissolved uh, in uh, 1991. But even after that, I think uh, really Cuban U.S. relations were were bad, and uh, there were there were some acts of Congress in the 1990s that kept the trade embargo intact, or even toughened the trade embargo. I think um, I forget the name of the act, but one the Helms Burton Act. There it is, Helms Burton Act. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the Helms Burton Act, 1996. Danny, is that correct? Yeah, you can imagine the difficulty Cuban Americans had in pronouncing that act. <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. Those, those names. So the Helms Burton Act, uh, my understanding of it anyway, is that uh, it kept the trade embargo intact and basically made it law so that it could not be removed until Cuba holds free and fair competitive elections and transitions to a democracy. Oh, so this change is is it contrary to that act? Then is that right? Well, uh, it's actually interesting because um, the Helms Burton Act was made to formalize the embargo because previously it had just been an executive order uh-huh. and any president could have just rescinded it, like oh, Obama okay. could have. I see. Um, and so part of the movement in the 90s was to get this actually in, in congressional sort of authorization so that, for example, now Obama can't lift the embargo completely without congressional action. And so the Helms-Burton Act was what codified the previous executive order into law? Into exactly. congressional law? Exactly. And so that's sort of what... That's actually very good you point that out because that's what sort of gets us into understanding what's going on now and why it's sort of sort of a relaxing but not really in some ways and a kind of strange middle ground. We just have to see how that plays out. Right. So then the, the recent, uh, the recent, if we can call it rapprochement uh, between Cuba and the United States is, is within the bounds of Helms-Burton because it keeps the trade embargo in place. Uh, but but it kind of moves towards normalization of diplomatic relations, et cetera? I'm sure some bureaucrat has looked into just how far they can push it while <laughs> still being under congressional authorization. But yeah, that's exactly what it does. It sort of keeps it um, as far as it can within the law. I think there was some leniency on certain things. Interestingly, I mean, even before anything President Obama did, uh, the U.S. is actually the largest or one of the largest trading partners of Cuba because medicines and food are exempt from the U.S. trade embargo. Um, And so the U.S. actually sends huge amounts of food and medicines to Cuba. Uh, Part of what President Obama did was that previously um, the Cuban government had to pay for all this in cash instead of credit, as most countries trade with. And so now, for the first time, Cuba will be able to accept credit, or the U.S. will accept credit um, for uh, sending products to Cuba. So that's one sort of nuanced way in which things change and it's still an embargo, but there's a little more flexibility as an example. Okay. So does this mean that, for example, Sally and I could vacation in Cuba next year? 
Well, it's it stops short of that. Um, so still officially U.S. Um, citizens can't travel for tourism to Cuba, but there's a whole list of purposes which are valid. So for instance, missionary and religious groups have been going for a long time. Um, different aid groups have been going for a long time. Educational and cultural tourists, so people in you know, their study abroad, students who go to Cuba and but basically, there was this whole complex visa process before Obama did this, and now it's actually, you, from my impression, I don't know exactly, I think it's just you kind of check a form off, and it's kind of all approved. So that's much more streamlined. It um, sounds like it. Yeah. Now, just, just out of curiosity, after talking to family and friends who uh, were in Cuba or are familiar with uh, other people who are, are close to people in Cuba, uh, what, what are their thoughts on all of this? Yeah, well, it's really been a kind of roller coaster for me and I think for many young Cuban Americans because many of us, at least I did, grew up with these political conversations about Cuba at the dinner table from when you were very little kids. And it was conversation among your grandparents, parents, relatives, friends. And so it's sort of always been an issue. And when will the Castros leave? When will things change? Right. When will things get better? And interestingly, it's always been framed as you know, when will things change in Cuba? When will the Castro's leave? When will, will there be a new government? Not so much about when will things change on the U.S. side of things. And, but there has been a movement for a long time to get the embargo uh, removed, the argument being that if it hasn't worked in 50-some years, it's probably not going to work. And, and by, worked, by worked, we're talking about the conditionality of the embargo, that that we're trying to encourage democracy and free markets in Cuba? Is that, is that what we mean by worked? Exactly, yeah. Uh, basically, yeah. Uh, stopping the kind of repressive system and giving human rights and democracy. Right. So if the aim of the embargo has been to encourage democracy, we can say that it's failed because democracy is not thriving in Cuba. That's the, the argument that, that the people who want to abolish it are making. Exactly. And I think that's sort of the mainstream argument that in some form or another, the supporters of Obama's policy are making. Um, it's more complex than that, but I think that sort of boils down to it. Um, I, on my side, I think it's a little more complex than that. I think that the the stories of what my grandparents went through uh, should not be ignored, and they really are. Um, there was a lot of injustice that happened in Cuba, and it continues to happen in Cuba. And for me, the kind of worst case scenario—I mean, they're really worst case scenarios—but the sort of realistic worst-case scenario that I see possible if we open up to Cuba too quickly is that you get opening to U.S. corporate interests, which really have very little interest in democracy and human rights, as we've seen in China and Vietnam, uh, but a maintaining of the repressive political structure and no real progress on democracy and human rights. And to me and to people on all sides of the debate, that's kind of a worst-case scenario because it sort of opens up to some of these negative economic uh, issues and and uh, doesn't really lead to more freedom for the Cuban people. While it might, in some ways, uh, improve the poverty on the island, but so it's it's very complex. And I think uh, I think reasonable people can disagree on it certainly, and depends on in the Cuban uh, Cuban American community on what uh, just what experiences you've had as a family and and as a political environment. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I think aid conditionality is always a tricky thing to work through because I know a lot of times we've done this in Africa 
as well where we will promise aid packages to countries and the aid will come with strings attached and so will require certain uh, progress be made towards establishing democracy or having free and fair elections but there's always problems with enforcing that and and a lot of times you can have a constitution on paper but that doesn't mean that it's actually going to be acted on uh, that there'll be follow-through on what the constitution says uh, and it doesn't mean that there won't be opportunists who come along perhaps like Raul Castro uh, and his, his brother Fidel uh, has done uh, who will take take advantage of their positions of power and uh overwrite uh, any existing rule of law that's supposed to be in place. So I understand that objection, absolutely. But, but I would go even further and say this is a bit of a different situation and more extreme because we really have no evidence in any of the speeches Raul Castro has given that he has any signs of a desire to change his system. It's always very condemnatory towards the U.S., right? They've done this to us. They've done this to us. And we can debate, and scholars continue to debate, what the U.S. has done to Cuba. Sure. But there's also the other side of the coin, which is what have the Castros done to Cuba? And, uh, and I think it's too easy to sort of play the blame game that it's all the U.S.'s fault and not really seriously look at what has to change there. Um, and I don't think they've even made those symbolic gestures, like you say those African countries sometimes have a sham concept. They don't even really... They haven't signaled any such changes um, right. as of this accord. Makes sense. I think this will be a really interesting topic to watch. I know Q- U.S.-Cuba relations have been very prominent in American politics, and, and every once in a while they'll really come to the forefront. So I think in, I think it was in 1999 when Elian uh, Gonzalez, yeah. um, if that's pronounced correctly, I probably butchered that as well. Uh, no, that was good. That was good. Oh, okay. Okay, good. <laughs> So I know, you know, that, that captured, I remember that, uh, seeing that in the, in the Washington Post and reading those stories that captured the imagination of America in a very vivid way, I think. And we look at pretty prominent, po- prominent politicians like, uh, uh, Robert Menendez, Senator from New Jersey, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, who's announced his candidacy for presidency, as well as Senator Marco Rubio, another, um, uh, at least presumed candidate at this point. So I think it'll be really interesting to see this issue unfold, uh, especially over the next, uh, a few calendar months, uh, especially as the presidential election ramps up. So it'll be really interesting to watch. And for me, I've always, as a Cuban-American, obviously I care about this because I kind of grew up around this, but especially when I left Miami and sort of went to college and, and also when I lived abroad, just always fascinated by how interested people were in Cuba, which, I mean, without any disrespect to Cuba, it's, it's kind of a small country and, like, I mean, you think there's bigger fish to fry, so to speak, <laughs> you know, but... It's obviously a huge issue that people care a lot about, which I've always been really fascinated by, um, and to see how much it arouses passions among people with no particular connection to the island um, is really interesting. It really is, absolutely. And I mean, my experience is so limited. I I know I love Cuban sandwiches, and I've heard good things about Cuban cigars, so... (laughs) You know, if I didn't have guys like you to steer me straight, Danny, I would think that Cuba was just a paradise. Of sorts. Well, I'm just trying to keep you, you know, keep you in line. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, all right. Well, I think that will wrap up our current affairs section. So now we'll transition to our lifestyle topic. And Sally has a good topic lined up for us today. Well, I thought we could talk about breakfast food because... Um, in recent months since the birth of our daughter, we've transitioned from having not really elaborate breakfasts, but at least breakfasts that take time to prepare in the morning. And now we've kind of sadly had to put away that 
preparation time um, and at least start the preparation the night before. So some of our favorite breakfast foods recently um, have been breakfast burritos that we make in advance and then put in the freezer so that Zach at five o'clock in the morning can just put them in the microwave and heat them up. And overnight oats, which... Well, let's just pause there. Let's pause talk about there? breakfast okay. burritos. Are you a breakfast burrito fan, Danny? I, I'm open to the idea. I've never really, <laughs> I've never really made breakfast burritos. I am interested in the quick things you can do in the morning, five in the morning as yes. a medical student. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, so I'm open that's my to position the idea. as well. So, uh, <laughs> Sally made these one day. Uh, I get up really early for work as well. And, uh, it really helps if I can get the extra 15 minutes of sleep. So I don't have to, you know, make myself an elaborate breakfast and, and really, for me, a bowl of cereal normally doesn't cut it. So if I eat a bowl of cereal in the morning by, you know, if I eat the bowl of cereal at five in the morning, then by eight, I'm starving. Yeah. So we want something with protein, staying something with power. fiber. It's all about yeah. the staying power. Yeah. Mm. So these burritos are pretty awesome and they're easy to make actually. Sally just made a huge batch of them yeah, earlier today. Yeah, there's a few ingredients, just tortillas. Um, we just have these whole wheat wraps and then scrambled eggs and roasted sweet potato um, and cheese. And that's it. Oh, uh, spinach too. Oh, spinach. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, pretty easy. We, uh, we dice up the sweet potatoes, uh, drizzle some oil on those, put them on a cookie sheet lined with aluminum foil, roast those at 450 for, I think, about 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how small you slice them. But... And you just kind of monitor them for softness. You'll be able to tell when they're done by sticking a fork in them. And then uh, you make some scrambled eggs, and that's pretty self-explanatory. Just I think... don't overcook them. Yeah, and you don't want to overcook them because when you freeze these things so you can save them for later, the, the completed burritos, you want to be able to throw them in their microwave, and that should kind of complete the cooking process of the eggs if they're just slightly underdone. Or at least not overcook them, yeah. Or at least not <laughs> overcook them, yeah, if they're not overdone or slightly underdone when you stuff the burritos. Yeah. So uh, you do that, uh, put some spinach on the stove. Wilt the spinach. Wilt it, um, pat it dry with paper towels if you, uh, if you prefer drier spinach. Um, throw all that in a wrap with some, some cheese. cheese, wrap it up, uh, put it in a little foil and throw it in the freezer. Yeah. And I actually then wrap it in saran wrap afterwards just to prevent freezer burn. So yeah, that's good. Wow. It, it sounds like a long process, but when you do, you know, eight or 10 of them at one time, it's nice. So you cover the whole week with one batch basically. Yeah. If you, if that's what you want to have every morning for breakfast. Yeah. And by Friday, they're still like, okay. Actually... Zach took his time on the last batch. I really did. Not because they weren't good, but actually because I kept, kept forgetting, forgetting they that were they there. were there in the freezer. <laughs> so I made them at the beginning of March and he just recently finished them off. And what did you think? I mean, it was really good. Yeah. I mean, no freezer burn that I noticed. Uh, maybe I was just too groggy at five in the morning. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, it tasted really good. It tasted absolutely fine. I think the, the double wrapping with saran wrap and uh, aluminum foil really helped that. So yeah. Wow. I'll have to give that a shot. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Help for those 5 a.m. med school mornings. Yeah, so what, exactly. do you, what do you do for breakfast then, Danny, if, if, you, if you don't have that much time? Like you, I mean, I don't have a small child in the home, but uh, I, I don't often have time during the weekdays. But So usually, I mean, as embarrassing as it might be to admit, just a quick PB&J or something. Um, I'm also like for breakfast. I know. Gotta have an iron stomach for that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. That makes sense. You've got, it's like having toast, peanut butter, and 
I mean, jam, you could put jam on toast. Sally's a huge peanut butter fan though. So anytime there's yeah, peanut butter in anything, she's all about it. I'll have for breakfast. I haven't thought I, of that though. I'm a peanut butter <laughs> fan, but I think peanut butter has its place in this world and really it should only be in that place. And it, it belongs <laughs> in, it belongs in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when you have them for lunch. It belongs with chocolate and uh, it also belongs sometimes on b- bananas. Uh, and that's oh. about it for peanut butter. I mean, but it's, it's great. But I got that's... you to try well, peanut butter and oatmeal. To, to consider, to consider <laughs> it. No, it's just very quick. But if sure. I had more time, like on the weekends, I love to cook omelets and make them sort of from scratch. And that's like my favorite breakfast food. Do you have one of those special oh. omelet pans? I don't really. I just have a small pan that kind of fits it. Um, oh, man. And the way I I did it, I think... I've been making them since I saw this, like, I don't know, some random cooking show on public television <laughs> when I was in high school. And, uh, That's awesome. And it's basically, it's a French omelet because I like my eggs a little bit uh, soft mm. and not overcooked. And so this way, um, you actually don't have to flip the omelet. It also helps because it's technically difficult to flip it. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so basically, you sort of heat up the oil really, really hot. And then uh, saute the you know turkey or tomatoes, peppers, and then uh, you put in the eggs. But basically, right away it gets um, solid, and so then you sort of you know all the egg on top. You kind of pass it to the bottom so that it dries off, but it's not fully dry like if you had flipped it. Right. And uh, and then you add cheese in the middle and melt it a little bit, and uh, it it comes out really great. And in principle, I've thought about ways I could like do them beforehand and like you do like kind of heat them up in the morning mm. if i don't have time but uh that's my ideal breakfast that, that actually sounds, sounds really good that sounds really good and it's good to know the little tip about heating the pan up really hot doing all the sauteing and then just pouring in the eggs and letting letting it cook that way without flipping it because we've made omelets a lot before and normally they end up pretty good but my biggest problem with omelets is the flipping yeah it's just, yeah. it's so, and I don't have, I'm not good enough, you know, like they do, like the chefs do on the food channel where I know. they kind of like shake the pan a little bit and then just flip it like a pancake. Oh yeah. I'm just, I've I'm, done it like twice and oh, these are wow. huge highlights in my life. That's <laughs> awesome. It's so epic, but I've also missed my fair share. So. Yeah. And that's what I'm afraid of. You know, I mean, I've put this time into making a, a two egg omelet for Sally or something. And I'm afraid of trying it and then just failing miserably and having egg all <laughs> egg over the everywhere. burner and on this floor. And yeah, it's just yeah. a mess. Yeah. I can see how that would be hard to make in advance too, especially if you want the eggs to stay a little soft. Yeah. I mean, how do you reheat that if you want them yeah. soft? That's, that's a challenge. Yeah. So. And a cold, slimy omelet is just disgusting. Oh. So you don't want that either. <laughs> but so that's one of our breakfast things. The other one is is called overnight oats, and Sally introduced this one to me. But it's pretty good. This is another. This is something you could do the night before, Danny, if you like. Oatmeal. If you like oatmeal, yeah, and it's very popular these days. But um, the way that I make it is equal parts uh, Greek yogurt, milk, and oats. So you can do a third cup, a third cup, a third cup, or half cup, half cup, half cup, and then mix all that together, and then. I add in additionally cinnamon and van- vanilla extract or imitation vanilla and um, flaxseed, ground flaxseed. And I just add a teaspoon of cinnamon and a quarter teaspoon or a half teaspoon of vanilla and a tablespoon of flaxseed. And then you can choose whatever fruit you want, dice it up and put it all in there and mix it all up together and put it in the fridge overnight. And then the next morning it's... Um, the, the oats have softened and it's a little bit more of a, I guess, a thicker texture. 
Um, and I think it's really good. And it has, because of the milk and the Greek yogurt, you've got that protein element. A lot of protein. It's pretty wow, tasty, good. Uh, yeah. but you know, you have to have the fruit in there because if you don't, then otherwise it's pretty tart. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Plain Greek yogurt, oats and milk is, is yeah. a little rough in the morning. Yeah. So bananas are really good. Blueberries are really good. Peaches are really good. Um, I think, and, and you could also do it with flavored Greek yogurt actually as sure, well. We just yeah. do it with plain Greek yeah. yogurt. Or you could add in, you know, maple syrup or honey if you didn't want to do the fruit. And we've so. done that. That's pretty good. My, my, my go-to is just the, the oats, milk, yogurt, and then a, a banana chopped up. But the banana goes in the night before, so that's softened and the sugar is just distributed a little bit throughout the oatmeal yeah. while it sits overnight. And then it has a nice sweetness in the morning. So yeah, it's pretty tasty. And what's the overnight advantage? I guess just that you don't have to prepare it in the morning or that does it like get tastier by so- sitting there? Yes, cool. tastier. <laughs> well, it's softening of the oats because you're mm. not cooking the oats. So you've, you're talking about raw oats. Yeah, so we're talking oh, about just, not. Yeah, okay. you, just, right. you yes. open up the Quaker can and just dump take oats out, in there and that's yeah, it. Just a half cup or a third cup and put it in there with the milk and the and the yogurt. So it has really? to soften. And that's why we like it though because it's that easy. I mean, if you had to cook the oats beforehand, I would just eat oatmeal instead of right. overnight oats. But right. Because you don't, you just throw dry oats in with milk and yogurt and voila. Yeah. And you don't, obviously you don't heat it in the morning. No, it's cold. Right. So yeah, that if yeah. you, if you so don't cold. mind a cold breakfast, then yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. We you like have, it. You gotta try this one out, Jamie. It's pretty good. <laughs> okay. I have to, I think I might even have the ingredients for it. I have to see. Yeah. Maybe Monday morning, tomorrow. I can put the recipes on our website too, for you as well as the rest of our listeners. And um, yeah, we're I also definitely. like the flaxseed because that has omega three fatty acids, which exactly. are very healthy. Exactly. Got to have those omega threes. Gotta love those. Speaking spoken by a true doctor. That's right. Future doctor, not yet. Future doctor. Well, that's actually a good segue though to uh, start our interview here. So, Danny, let's talk about you for a, a few minutes. Tell us, first of all, uh, I guess the thing I've most been wondering is, did you always know you were going to be a doctor? You know, that's a funny question that sort of everyone asks, which is, I guess, so it's sort of yes and no. And I, and I think I advise a lot of pre-med students too. And so I get to see what they say. And I think for most people I've seen, it's sort of a combination of yes and no. And so, yeah, you kind of have this idea. I remember I promised my grandpa, when he had a knee replacement, I might have been like six or seven. I was like, Grandpa, you got this knee fixed. I'm going to fix the other knee when I'm older. Um, you know, oh, how cute. You know, little kid said that. Yeah. Aww. So I guess technically that's when I first said. Man, little expressed. Danny sounds adorable. <laughs> <laughs> that's when I first expressed the interest um, to go into medicine in some way, if, if you can even count that. Um, and so I kind of always felt like medicine was cool. I had the good fortune of growing up with my mom being a doctor. She's a pediatrician. And so I got exposed to that a little bit um, just through her and, and her work and what that was like. Um, but I think I really made the decision my own later in sort of late high school and college when I actually, I volunteered in some clinics and I work with particularly elderly patients, um, which really made me love that role of a doctor uh, to care for people in their most vulnerable moments. And especially having grown up with my grandparents living at home with me, seeing my grandparents get sick and eventually pass away, while it was incredibly difficult, um, I kind of also saw the role that good doctors can play in helping the family and the patients, as well as the role that 
not good doctors play and making it more difficult. And I definitely wanted to be the lab, the, the former of a good doctor um, who would uh, care for the patients well. Yeah, so I think that's sort of how the path went. Um, I don't know. If, you can ask more, I guess, if you want more. No, no I think that makes sense. So <laughs> if I understood you correctly, you always you always knew that there was an interest there or you've always had an interest there for about as long as you can remember. Uh, and that was what you, that was always what you were heading towards. Right. And I think I had moments certainly where I thought about other things and, um, you know, you get to college and I was fortunate to go to a place like Harvard where people have all these interesting career paths I never heard of, like consulting and all these business things and, and research and all those things. But, uh, so, and they all seem really cool and interesting, but, uh, ultimately it always came back to medicine. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I actually at one point thought I might want to be a doctor as well. But one of the things that, that dissuaded me was just how long your entire pipeline is for training. And in, in many ways, it seems like it, it is to the exclusion of being able to do other things. So is that something that you found to be the case? Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I think that is the case, and it uh, it requires a real dedication. And I think there's a danger of seeing, like you kind of mentioned, seeing medicine is like, oh, I can do medicine, and then, but there's all these other things. And it's true, doctors have a lot of social respect and a lot of skills that can translate not just in the clinic, but to policy and business and all sorts of different areas. Um, but I think to go through all those years, you have to really love caring for patients. And if you don't really have that super solid, it's going to be really easy to get burnt out and just, like you said, not see that. And so if there are reasons other than loving the care of patients that you want to be a doctor, uh, that's good. But if you don't have that firm belief that you want to care for patients, there's other ways to achieve similar things. Um, so research primarily is what I guess you're getting at? You could do research if you're more on the sciencey side, if uh, you're more interested in the kind of policy business side, honestly, if you do healthcare consulting or different policy or business programs, you could really have a huge impact on healthcare policy and management. Um, yeah, there's a million ways to get into healthcare and some people um, don't find, you know, the MD degree to be right for them or just don't go want to go through all those years. And so you can also do other clinical jobs. Um, such as psychology or nursing or any number of other kinds of things. So speaking of that long trajectory of school, what I'm really interested to know about, and maybe our listeners are too, is medical school. What is, I guess it probably changes from year to year, but maybe you could give us an idea of what's a typical, what's a day in the life of a medical student or what's a day in the life of Danny, the medical student? <laughs> yeah, no, so it's... Um... It's, there's a lot of like TV shows about doctors and training and all those things. And uh, it's funny, it has all this um, hype about it. But I think that really it, medical school is four years after having done college for four years. And the programs vary a little bit, but basically there's preclinical years before you go to the hospital, which are mainly spent in the classroom learning and that kind of thing. And then the clinical years, uh, which are when you work in the hospital as part of a team for the most junior member of the team. And where actually, are you now? Are you pre And so I'm actually just at the transition between those oh, two, um, cool. which is a really interesting place to be. Um, so I've just finished two years, almost two years, of classroom time. 
going through all the organ systems, all the pathology, pharmacology, all those subjects. You know, my days would be pretty much class every morning, sort of 8.30 to 12.30, plus a couple afternoons, and then a lot of, you know, studying books and uh, a little bit of patient care, a little bit of going to see patients and get to learn to take histories and talk to patients, but primarily, you know, learning from books and, and professors. So if I'm understanding you correctly, basically after two years of medical school, all the classroom work is done and it's just clinical from that point out? Yeah, and so you learn, we'll all be wow. doing this series, um, going through different rotations. So I'll spend time in the internal medicine floors with patients who are just coming in with heart failure or um, uh, lung problems or a gastrointestinal bleed, or, you know, all those things. Then I'll go through psychiatry for a month, neurology for a month. I'll have a pediatric month. I'll help deliver babies for a couple weeks. You know, so it'll be everything. That's awesome. And surgery. So you get to see a whole, the whole spectrum of medicine, which is really cool. Now, do you have an idea of which field of medicine you want to pursue? I know you haven't done all the rotations yet, but... Well, yeah, the idea is that this coming year, you sort of see everything, and then at the end, you have this kind of aha moment and <laughs> say, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I think it's probably more complex than that, but uh, <laughs> internal medicine would be really interesting, and uh, I have an interest in the brain as well, and I think that's fascinating. So psychiatry or neurology could be really cool too, but it's one thing to about in the books and another thing to see what daily life is like as whatever a neurologist or a internist as we call them yeah that makes sense so you'll have to uh help me out here another burning question that i've had in my mind for you is i want your opinion after working in a hospital for a couple years of med school and learning from practitioners and as someone who's about to go into the clinical setting over your next couple years before being a doctor what do you think is the most accurate portrayal of the medical community on TV today? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the build-up. <laughs> so, so, build yeah. you know, I mean, we just see all these shows. So I, I'm partial to Scrubs and House. But, I, I mean, there's a lot of others, right? There's, I think, Nurse Jackie is one, or ER, or Grey's Anatomy, uh, Bones. Is, is Bones medical? Uh, I think it's criminal more. Oh, okay. well, disregard that. But medical piece to it um, okay yeah oof that's a tough one so another, <laughs> I'm sure you have so much time to be watching all these shows too so. well you read my mind Sally yeah <laughs> one of the parts of medical school is that you sort of are living it instead of watching it um, but uh, if I had to say in my limited uh, medical show watching I find House really interesting and uh, I think the type of stuff he does I mean except all the weird like drug things and all that but the, the, the normal, like, really weird cases he gets, um, which is sort of his day-to-day, -day, um, is really interesting to watch. And I think there is a lot of clinical stuff that, I mean, clearly physicians are working on that script. I think that's probably better than the kind of more, shall we say, social medical shows, where it's more about the relationships, relationships between the doctors yeah. and or the, the medicine. Or the say. soap opera medical shows, yeah. like Grey's <laughs> yes, Anatomy, perhaps. Yes. More accurate, yeah. So, all right, well, don't know that's, about all that. that's disappointing. I, I've been watching Scrubs and sort of wishing I was a doctor because it looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> but uh, talking to you, it sounds like medical school is just so fascinating and interesting all the time, and you're just having a ton of fun while you're working hard. Is there anything you don't like about medical school, or and if so, what do you, if there's more than one thing, what do you like the least? 
Yeah, well, I think um, all of us, all my classmates, uh, struggle with how to keep that, you know, idealistic, humanistic, joyful attitude we had day one of medical school throughout all four years. And there's this thing called, I think they've called it the, the hidden curriculum, which is how you're sort of taught to be idealistic and kind and a good doctor, but in so many ways by the enormous workload and then in clinical life, all the stress and bureaucracy, that you lose those ideals. And so it's definitely a constant battle to maintain that and, uh, and make that really motivate what you do as opposed to just kind of like trudging through and uh, yeah. get frustrated. So I have a very firm no-complaining policy in medical school. I haven't been perfect about it, but there, it's very important to resist the culture of complaining um, because it's, we're very lucky to be doing what we're doing. Uh, yeah. Well, that's great, man. Uh, I feel like once you graduate, I'd be lucky to have you as a doctor because you seem like you're a guy who cares a lot about what you're doing and you seem to be motivated by all the right reasons. I've never heard you say that you're in it for the money or you're going after the fields of medicine that offer the, the biggest paycheck. The fame and glory, yeah. If I didn't do it, someone else would do it. Um, but there's certainly issues that I'm really passionate about that I know maybe not as many people are interested in, but uh, there's clearly a big need. So we'll see where that leads me. Well, that's great, man. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today. We're really interested in, in hearing all about your medical school stuff. And thanks yeah, for sharing. Yeah, so good. Thanks for sharing breakfast tips with us and talking to us about Cuba. Uh, I guess one other question I have before we close, uh, putting you on the spot here, you have a dinner party. And you're, you're able to invite three people from history. Who do you invite? Oh, man. That's a tough one. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, That's really hard. And it's even tougher because I've been asked that before and kind of flopped it. So now I have to like... Ooh. Well, I'm, I'm assessing you based on your answers. So you better <laughs> okay, not, you better okay, not flop this one. And all of our listeners are. <laughs> three people in history. Yep. Um... They could be alive today. They could be dead. But but you're not limited to living people. Living people. Hmm. Not just living people. Not just living people. Okay. I would say, let's see. So professionally, I'd want to have three different elements of my life. I think professionally, I'd want to meet this guy, sort of an obscure physician of early 20th century America named I.L. Nasher, um, who was the founder of geriatrics. And he was the first person really to say that actually the care of older people is different than that of uh, all the other people and how can we really care them. So I'd love to talk to him about like how can we do that in real life. And I really admire some of the work he did in New York uh, back in the early 20th century. And I think um, from a kind of uh, moral perspective, someone who's been a huge uh, figure in, in my time in life but also in my personal life, is uh, John Paul II, St. John Paul II. And I think he had such an interesting story of his uh, childhood in Poland and how he grew up and came out of that, a fascinating story of faith and perseverance. And his message of hope really literally changed the world um, and certainly uh, Eastern Europe. And, uh, and I'd, anyway, I'd love to meet him. And then I think, um, thirdly, I would really love to meet, um, well, I guess if I could, my grandfather um, who passed away, and, uh, and I really miss him, and I'd love to be able to talk to him uh, about life again like we used to when we were little. 
and uh, and garden with him or something uh, after the dinner party, of course. Um, wow, Danny, you did not flop this time. <laughs> Those were <laughs> fantastic answers. When you host that dinner party, can you please invite us? We'll fly out to Boston. I was about to say oh, the sure. same thing, yeah. <laughs> and you can make omelets for us. Yes, omelets for everyone. And, and we'll make overnight oats for you <laughs> the next morning. Yeah, I'll, I'll report back on how that goes. <laughs> All right, man. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us. We really enjoyed it. And I uh, hope you have a great rest of your year at Harvard Medical School. And we wish you the very best as you start your clinical uh, program next year. Well, thank you for having me. And I'll be following your podcast closely. This was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Okay, bye. All right. For the final segment of our podcast, we will go to our inbox and read emails from our listeners. Zach, do we have any emails from our listeners? Great question, Sally. Let's check the inbox. It looks like we do. We have one email from Yay. a fan. Thanks, guys. All right, our first email from a fan. Let's see what it says. Yay. Dear Zach and Sally, love the podcast. You guys sound so great together. Aw. Love you both. Love, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just kidding. We didn't actually get an email. We don't have any fans yet, or at least we have no emails from fans yet. So you could <laughs> well, be... Well, as of now, we don't have fans because no one's heard this. <laughs> right. You could be, though, the first fan to hit our inbox with fan mail. Yeah. Email us. <laughs> ask I'm, us questions. Not fan mail, but seriously, you can email us, reach out, ask us questions, give us feedback. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. We can do corrections and apologies if we made a mistake. And by tell us what you like and don't like, Sally means what you like and don't like about the show. Oh, you don't yeah. need to email us and say, I like the color blue. <laughs> I really like Chinese food. Right, right, right. I mean, you can. You know. I mean, I hope that was implied. But yeah, what you like or don't like about the podcast. Right. So reach out to us, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And your email could be read in the inbox segment of our podcast. Thanks for listening to our first full-length episode of Vernacular Podcast. Tune in again next week when we talk to Elena, who served as a missionary to Thailand for two years and now works with inner-city populations in Chicago. In the meantime, check out our website, vernacularpodcast.com. On that note, we'll wrap it up. I'm Sally. And I'm Zach. And you've been listening to Vernacular Podcast.